Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, where we have conversations with guests about their life, loss, grief, and of course, grief dreams, which can be dreams of the deceased. If you want to know more about the topic and your hosts, please visit our website at griefdreams.ca. To support our podcast, please go ahead and rate it. For additional ways to support us, please refer to our show notes. Before we move on with the show, we'd like to give a territory acknowledgement. Long before Canada was formed, the Stalo people were the original land stewards, and they have lived here since time immemorial. They continue to live in the unceded Stalo territory, known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia. We recognize and honor the contribution that Indigenous people have made and continue to make to our community and the topic of great dreams. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for joining us today. So on the show, we have your two hosts, myself, Joshua, and we have Jade. And our special guest is Addison Brazil, who is a speaker and the author of the book, First Year of Grief Club, A Gift from a Friend Who Gets It. He shows up in the world as an active and committed mental health advocate after finding himself just to the left of death three times during his 20s. Losing his brother to an operable brain tumor, finding his father after suicide, and surviving a fatal accident that killed a dear friend and left him relearning to walk. Attributing his ability to not only survive, but thrive with PTSD and compounded grief to the value of community and connection. Thank you, Addison, so much for joining us today. And man, reading that bio, it it really got to me with so many significant deaths all in your, your 20s. And I don't know what to, to really say about that, but I'm glad you survived and I'm glad you're here to talk about your journey. Thank you. Yeah. And let me just say it is an honor to be here and I feel very present and I, I feel very similarly to how you probably feel after hearing that right now. It's just a, yeah, a, a retrospective time for me. So to hear that there's this also little part of me that wants to be, oh, and he's really fun too. And he likes to laugh all the time. And he's had this, all these amazing adventures too. just like add that in there. But yes, thank you for having me. And um, thank you for doing the hard part for me. When you say that part, I, uh, I, I could just smooth sail now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. No promises. <laughs> And so just looking sort of at that journey in your 20s, my dad died when I was in my 20s also. And I had no awareness and no guide, I guess, to understanding my feelings and and having, I guess, a support network around me that, um, that really understood it either. I'm just curious if you could maybe just go back and talk about that journey that you went through uh, and what you learned. Like I think, you know, like for being an advocate, of grief literacy and also mental health. I'm guessing you've had your challenges through that. Yeah, absolutely. And I th- I think my biggest goal looking back with the book was definitely to like dispel the belief because I spent probably 10 to 13 years believing this was something I could fix. Like to dispel the belief that something was going to fix this, whether that was like a literal tool or type of therapy or, you know, whatever, or like fame or like validation or love or like like something would be big enough to make it so that I didn't have to feel these losses. You know, my brother died of an inoperable brain tumor, which was much like anybody who's, you know, been on a journey with a child with cancer. So that was, a, you know, a four-year journey while I was just in high school as well, like sort of finding myself and we we're just two years apart. So very close. And there was a lot that came with that being, you know, the older brother. 
Like it just, it just didn't, um, it didn't sit well as you might imagine, but you know, there was so much to that process and whether I liked it or not so much information available to us that, that, that possible ending was going to come. And in a way, I always describe my brother's death in my own way as like a beautiful death. It like it true. Like he was just like the most beautiful kid and he was so surrounded by love. And the day he died, even we were all surrounding him and it was like a holiday Monday. So nobody had to get a call at work. Like it was just, you know, I jokingly kind of always like say, you just had to do it right. Like all the way, you know, like to the end. And, and he, he used humor, like most of our family throughout most of that process to really make us all feel like he was never really sick until, till the end. So so it's interesting because I had that whole grief process, obviously. And then being 23, um, I returned to Toronto and I got very, very close with my dad after his second marriage ended and kind of became like sort of his main touch point within the family, at least. And there was a bit of an idea that something was off, but it was within two weeks of his death that I was sort of sounding alarms and going, okay, this isn't, this isn't my dad, something's happening here. And I, you know, this is why I publicly thanked when I wrote that article for Los Angeles Magazine, um, Zach Williams, Robin Williams' son, because he so publicly had to grieve his dad with everybody who saw him as sort of this life of the party, you know, always fun. And and my dad was like that. When I had to call people the day my dad died, people were trying to convince me on the phone that I was mistaken. And as someone who's found someone after suicide, I assured them I was not mistaken. But that's just how palpable this belief was like, no, he's always happy. He's always the life of the party. He's always making a joke. You know, he's always kind of making sure everybody else is having fun. That suicide in itself, especially in where I wasn't in tune. And of course, I've been a part of like a whole men's mental health movement now. And now we talk about a lot more and there's apps and there's and I'm proud to be a part of all of that sort of history as well. But you know, in 2012, there really wasn't. And a Portuguese Portuguese Catholic man who's twice divorced and has seen the real backlash of the economy in the 2008, not to mention losing his son to, to cancer, you know, um, there wasn't outlets really, like there wasn't. And I know that he was sort of looking for help at that time, but it wasn't the world we lived in today. And, and I say that because as a griever, you know, who inherited my mental health education at that time for me in my 20s when, you know, I was trying to figure out who I was and dealing with all of that stuff. I also was in no way equipped to deal with the resulting mental health challenges and the PTSD that came from, and I'm sure we can put a trigger warning on this episode, but like from, from the reality of, of no matter how bad that feeling in your stomach may be, and you follow it somewhere that there's actually a chance that you're going to find like sort of the worst thing that you could imagine. And, and, and that's your dad. And so that way that I felt about my brother in an inverse way, it was like, this is the person who was always going to protect me. And somehow my job in loving him through his finality and his final hours became the least protected I ever felt as a child, obviously from one thing I just never wanted to see or be a part of. So yeah, it, it it sent me on a journey in my 20s. And I think that looking back, as I brought up in the beginning, one where I really was trying to figure out how to fix it. 
and how to make sense of it. And after my brother, I started like a huge nonprofit organization and raised all this money for brain tumor families in his name and all this press and, you know, went back to school and graduated with honors and danced on scholarship and went on, got like my first job right after school, like all, all the things, you know, so there are these waves of sort of this masterful young man of vices where I was just sort of balancing everything in a way that while I was experimenting with, well, what could fix this? Like, you know, how successful do I need to be? Or how many people can I save to make this a good thing kind of thing? Um, and then also just like what type of therapy, like, you know, coaches, uh, retreats, like, can we yoga this? Like all, all the things, you know, tapping, like, you know, like Reiki me a hundred times over, like just, you know, all the things I really got set off onto this journey, which is very different from anybody. I knew at that time of what they were sort of, you know, weirdly going through a journey of finding themselves in the twenties, but, but not so much in everything was not so much in response to trauma and surviving that trauma. And um, when you have PTSD in that way, you also don't get to the grieving of like son grieving father for a long time. I was like very much dealing with the traumatic element, much like a first responder for a long time. And then my brain would slowly try to go, okay, so that bad thing, that's dad. And it was like uh, running windows on Mac. Like we cannot, like the operating system was just not fit for that. But, but yeah, so that, that really became for me from like about 23 to 28, just sort of, Believing I could fix it, believing I had fixed it, realizing that that wasn't true, jumping into the intensity of some other healing practice or some other modality. And around around 28, I believe, I, I remember being in LA and everybody at the time was kind of just saying, hey, like, you really sound like you. Like, I think you did the damn thing. Like, you know, it's like you did it. And I, and I, I believed it. I was like, I fixed it. I beat it. I'm back. You know, and I, I literally went out. I was celebrating that week and we went out and on the way home, we were in that, that terrible accident that unfortunately killed my dear friend and um, left me hospitalized and relearning to walk. But really that was the game changer. It was like, you haven't fixed anything. And when I was in that bed and I couldn't move and I couldn't run and I couldn't achieve and I couldn't even help myself, never mind anybody else. I couldn't do any of the things. I couldn't drink. I couldn't do any of the normal, you know, like young man things you might do to distract you. I couldn't do anything. And I'd always used as like a former dancer and athlete, I'd always use running and being physically able as a huge way to get through anything. And I was, you know, in a bed, relearning to walk into wheelchair, into walker. And anytime I would sort of bring up running, they would kind of be like, you're lucky to be here mentality. And it was like this, no, I, I have to run. I have to run uh, thing that sort of, and so that's sort of, yeah, those three grief processes. And, and that one, unfortunately, because of the element of physical pain and everything I'd been through that third grief process, really brought me to my own suicidal moment where I, I sort of, my whole team was, was aware. I basically was like, mom, you're babysitting me. I I'd co-parented since the day I was born. And it was the first time I just relinquished everything. I just like really didn't think I could be here anymore. Um, and, and the whispers of maybe that's too much for one person sort of really became real for me at that time. But luckily 
I have an incredible mother and an incredible group of supporters and friends. And I have always had the absolute honor and privilege of being able to tell the truth in those moments. And it truly, you know, that's why I always say that in my bio, that like this idea of community and connection, you know, really was that. And it it was in that whole process. I really did think I wasn't going to make it. And I remember just saying like out loud, you know, if you get me through, I'll go back for the others. Like I promise I'll go back for the others. Like, just please, like almost as if, which is so odd when you think about suicide, like that I was asking it to not happen but really you know everyone when you think about it at least when i thought about it normally younger this was a something that you know my dad thought about and carried out like you wouldn't think there's the disconnect of like a cancer sort of coming for you but obviously i learned and the the one thing out of that experience was it was the most understanding compassion and closest that i felt to my dad because i just got it there was no me there was no like all the things you think it just you know, I just needed the pain to stop and I just needed things to be quieter. There, it wasn't all these weighing out all these things of how it would affect anyone. It was like if a fire alarm was going off in your house all the time, eventually you'd do anything to stop it kind of feeling. But yeah, luckily I came through and from that day forward, it really became this thing where, you know, grief and mental health are not something you fix. There's something you honor. So yeah, it's that's that's sort of the process of, of of really honestly that takes me to about 30 years old so that that was my 20s my brother at 19 and then and sort of coming out of all of that um at 30 and and finally feeling like in the pandemic like everybody was grieving and i wasn't isolated anymore i could tell everybody was dealing with the loss of something meaningful and it just finally made sense for me to be like hey i think i i can offer something on this And that's sort of where the book was born. Incredible. I'm like speechless after that. That's so insightful. And I'm just curious if you can elaborate a little bit on the on the notion of feeling like there was something to fix. And you talked about the accident. Mm. So was was the accident um, with your your dear friend in the car? Was that did that? push you to the place of realization that there was like nothing to fix because I feel like I talk to lots of people that are still in that belief a lot and they're spinning around and like like you were saying how can I yoga out of this or how can I fix it and I think radical acceptance around to a degree around what's happened but I'm just curious a little bit more around how how you landed in that space of like there's actually nothing to fix this is a this is going to be a continued journey this is part of who I am and how I'm going to move around in the world moving forward yeah i think in part it was trying absolutely everything and like as sort of a young actor writer model in la in my 20s i am so happy now that i never picked up and got famous because like any sort of in, in looking in on that process but I think it it really was an exhaustion and then I think of for me it was it was waking up in the hospital bed that next day and and sort of being surrounded by everybody and and my mom had flown in and my memory's a little bit jogged around the whole thing but it was when I literally couldn't move anymore. It just became so obvious. Like there is nothing to fix and there's no way you can fix this. You know, there's nothing that is going to just fill, you know, there's no partner, there's no job, there's no Oscar, there's no book award or bestseller list or 
saving the entire world for their mental health that's going to fix this hole this is it's 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 not like it's not like that it's not fillable it's it's just a part of the texture now it'd be like trying to fix the the holes in the moon they're not they don't need to be filled that's the texture of the moon you know what i mean it's it sort of it just became so so obvious and i i just remember like touching and feeling because my head split open and they had sewn it back together and i remember i was just like touching they kept touching it and looking at the blood because i just couldn't believe that, that it was possible and and i you know, just looking at my mom and saying like what is what is happening because even within my own family it really started we were all around that bed with my brother and really my parents lost a child which i always you know i don't believe in competitive grief or or comparing but you know bearing a child like you know i just there was something around that but we were a family around that and then with my dad it you know because i was the one who was there it was like we we were all in it but i was in it in a different way and then with the accident it was really everybody trying to support me with this very good friend i had and my challenges but there it wasn't like everybody was in it together at all anymore so it just became this totally totally different thing and so i think it was just like being being tired and also literally not being able to do any of the things that you would naturally maybe want to do as a distraction even because you know like i didn't believe any of like sort of the myriad of vices that you have in your 20s whether it's overachieving traveling partying whatever i didn't see those as fixes but they were a part of this fake idea i had before the accident that i was fixed because i was now balancing them so well and so it, it it was more like as soon as i realized i wasn't going to be able to sort of I don't know, almost distract myself in a beautifully well done way that I give myself credit for in a different way because it it was well intentioned. I just I wanted I it sounds cliché but I did want to thrive. I didn't want to just survive. I I I owe I felt like I owed it to them too. I in a weird way people will say to me like you're you're like the unluckiest person I know and I'm like did you hear the stories? Like I'm just to the left every time. I still went back to school and danced on scholarship. I still traveled the world. I still got to move to California and go through the groundlings and like, you know, all, all these things that I got to do and still get to do, you know, it's a very weird it's a very weird thing to think like although it's like heartbreaking that in a way I'm not the unlucky one. And the funny side because this is so <laughs> the funny side is what I always say is I'm not worried about me, I'm worried about you. <laughs> It's the person next to me. It's not me. You know, and then that's sort of the easiest way to get a laugh and change the subject, which I've become masterful at, of course. I always find it interesting when people do talk about sort of that fix. They do, like, I see it all the time also, which is part of, I think, that the culture narrative. And that a lot of times we don't even know what we're doing or think we're doing it. It feels good in a way because it's alleviating some pain or some conscious sort of time with the grief and so that's just the path we go like unconsciously because mm-hmm. it feels a little bit better and those are the tools we use prior for other pains and other moments of that we suffered and then you have this and i think that what i really sort of take from all of it is that the accident and you being sort of not being able to move and not being able to use those vices or those activities you had to be honest with yourself it forced you to be honest like there's no running from it and it's mm-hmm. just like put you in this corner for you to really see who are you 
you know, without all this other stuff. And that's a scary, such a scary position to be in. As you said, it took you to the edge of life in the sense of if you even found life meaningful anymore, when you couldn't do those things and you had to face all that was in your life and all that was inside. And, you know, I've had moments in my life where I was at the edge and it did take this sense of honesty and surrender to the honesty. I don't know if you like, it's just like this horrifying look at who I actually am versus who I thought I was. And I needed this, like a sort of this event to really sort of shake me to the core. And it's never, it was never a pleasant feeling, but it did put me on a different path than I was prior. And I don't know if you could speak on, on that. Cause I think that's an important part because you did speak about the importance of honesty and I, and there's something about surrendering to honesty and also about how difficult it is. Like people say they want honesty, but I don't know if they really do because it's painful to hear a lot of times. Yeah. I, I think that brings up such a good point. And, and weirdly, like right now I'm like writing this one keynote and it, it's sort of right around what I've been like exploring recently. But I love that you brought that up because it sounds in retrospect, sometimes when I speak or when you read the book, like I was aware the whole time. And I, of course was not, I like, it wasn't like, you know, that, in this path of, of fixing. And I think a lot of people don't realize until, and it's not always a negative thing. Actually, I was listening to Anderson Cooper's new podcast on grief and Molly Shannon was saying that it wasn't until she got SNL, she got her dream that she realized it, that she that's what she had been trying to do the whole time to fix it and fix losing her mother at such a young age. And she didn't, that was the first time she cried about her mother's death. Like 25 years later was when she got the thing she subconsciously believed deeply would be enough would fill something or fix something you know so we don't know and it's like so some people it's like you know you get that promotion and then it's like then you're realizing or you know whatever it is i i learned in a very harsh way with sort of another compounded grief process but i think that just allowing that if this is like new information for someone like that's a whole process on its own it's just this idea of like and really gently compassionately kindly curiously looking at that and being like oh i guess like i guess i was sort of on some level like an innocent child would hoping that that vacation or that you know this thing that i put all my stock into getting to would maybe fix it and i think some people and i think i did i've always had such a strong desire to be a father and that amplified a lot after i lost um my brother specifically but like this idea that like but then it was like you know, making a new family or adding to the family or having to then now my whole focus for the rest of my life is about somebody else. Like it's like guaranteed, verified blue check. I'll pay my $8 a month, Elon, for, my, you know, like, like for something that matters more than me, you know? So it's, there's all these really innocent roots and it's, it's just like getting honest with yourself and doing it in a compassionate and curious way is like any other muscle like it is like you are in the gym like i say like in the grief arena every day and gently like going like okay yeah 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 like like just talking to yourself almost like a child in the way that you might do that but i, I think that you know i had a lot of that around the time when the pain became too much where you know i was so we had to fix it. We had to, whatever it was, surgery, whatever it was, but like, I could not go on like this. And I had one friend at the time who just said, what if, what if you just accepted it? What if this is it? Like, what if, and I really did think that 
that that doing that might be the end of my life. Like I, I really thought he was tiptoeing into, but in a way, the day that I would have thought I would no longer be here, that's what it was. That sort of ultimate, this is what there is. And I can no longer do anything to fix it. And I thought within moments, I wouldn't be able to be here of sitting in that. And and it was quite the opposite experience for me. It was like in that, like you said, in that surrender and in that acceptance and those words get used in a weird way sometimes, but when it's a literal surrendering of every limited belief of every sort of hope, every begging, bargaining, all the grief stuff, like when you're just really like, no, like it's just not going to work. Where are we at? And you end up sitting there with your real self. And that's like very uncomfortable uh, and very just like telling of just what really matters and what matters from this moment forward. And it's um, it's funny, you're, you're, you're striking a chord because I'm going to have to call my mom later because I really, I know we both know that morning. I remember the talking to something above or whatever, but then it's a blur and then like in this weird way, it's, it's, I've carried by magic and obviously love and support of a family at the time. But then the next thing I can really remember is holding my dog, which I got like, this would be like a month later, you know, where it's like, and I'm sitting there going like, oh my God, I'm here kind of thing for a little bit of inspiration also out of that surrender and out of then going into trusting what I truly thought would be healing for me and my body and no longer listening to anybody else. I live 98% in no pain to this day. And I run at Barry's boot camp. I sprint. I do all the things that they said I could never do. So it, it isn't like this, you know, like it, it's, but it, it, it's sort of like, you know, I always say like, there's, there's three Brazil boys, my, my son or my son, my brother, my father, who are both like sons to me at times, actually. <laughs> um, but like my brother, my father and me, and it's like, well, what happened to the third one? And it's like, I, you know, I say he died too. It just, he got to rebirth. Like, it's just that person who lost those people had to be completely let go of after, after the accident. There was no, there was no way that that, that, that little boy who believed that like, maybe a God was punishing him for something or like, you know, all the things you sort of form growing up, none of that could stay, you know, it was him or me in a weird way. And then, and then I got to be me for the first time in my whole life. Yeah. It was just, but that's, that's a, it's an honesty. I wish more of us could get to without trauma or loss. I I wish also that I could do really creative things and, and do all these big impact things that I do or like, you know, write or do the things that people celebrate me for without feeling like my sort of soul needs to be like, like a cloth wrung out for it to then happen. Like, I I wish that we could get to these moments without something unbearable forcing it. But it's that weird thing where it's like, there's no way I can get through this. And then suddenly you're in a room with yourself for the first time. And it just becomes very clear and very different of what honoring would look like. And really, you know, from that day forward, it was about starting by checking in, 
starting to go back and experiment and go, okay, what really works for me? I don't have a list of 10 things that I give to other people. I give them 52 experiments in the book that they can do to build their own resilience tools. And if they, if my tool doesn't work for you, I will help you throw it out. Like I, I have no interest in being able to say like, there's 12 hacks to grief. Like there isn't, you know, I'm just in the club with you and I know it's a lifetime membership and I know in accepting that I had a lot of freedom, but that's everyone's going to be on their own journey of, of getting to that point. I guess in talking about the book, it's based around that first year of loss um, mm-hmm. that people go through. And I'm just sort of looking at where you are now. And as you said, grief is a lifelong process. Where are you within your your own grief? And how do you see those emotions come up in your daily life now? You're catching me at a very like pivotal and odd moment. I feel like this last year, like as I approach my birthday on Monday, I'm realizing that this last year, 33, was really the first year of my entire life that I got to be here of my entire adult life, sorry, since my brother passed. But so for me, the whole time I've been an adult, basically, where everything that I'm doing, feeling, being isn't in response to sort of this tidal wave of something behind me, of this unbearable idea of will I make it through this grief or the the post-traumatic mentally with my father and then mentally and physically later, you know, Everything was basically in response to that and keeping myself always healthy enough that I didn't cause anybody else to have grief, basically, and and that I was here. So this has been the first year and really in the last month, the first month of my whole life um, as an adult that I'm here. And it's, it's very interesting. And it's funny because everything, like, I'm like, why'd you write that book? Why do you say this stuff? Because doing it when you're fully feeling, when there's no parts of you really protecting or numbing or in some sort of post-traumatic spa- um, state or space, um, it's it's a lot. I feel like like someone just turned the lights on and the sound on and like everything at once and I keep having these moments where I feel like a newborn and like an old man, like sort of, I have like Benjamin Button syndrome, like where I'm like both at the same time, because I, I feel like I've never been here and I'm like, whoa, this is so cool. But also like, I don't know if you remember like your first like crush in high school or being like when you're like 14 and everything like actually hurts, like, like feeling these things is like, and I'm having that at 34 and everybody's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, like it is. So it's, it's a really interesting little moment that I'm in. And I will say it brings, I love the quality of challenges that I'm finally in, but it's a real responsibility to continue to quote unquote, honor the journey. As I say, when you're really a part of it and it's really happening. And so it's moved away a lot from some of the more traumatic elements when I, when I make fall into some rumination or remembering and more into these really like heartbreaking sort of like like thinking about the last time my dad hugged me, came to me. I was, I went for coffee yesterday in the city and I guess I walked in at 10 57 AM, not realizing what day it was or what time it was. And I took my coffee order and then they said, just stand to the side. And then they said, okay, it's 11 AM on Remembrance Day, 11, 11. We're going to do two minutes of silence. 
And in that two minutes with like a whole group of people in dead silence, especially coming out of a pandemic like this, just I have not had to do that, like hold space like that with strangers. Like I just felt so vulnerable in that two years felt like 20 years, like with the flashes I got, it was, it wasn't some like what it would the post-traumatic things, which would kind of usually make me shudder. It was these really like, you know, my brother putting his hand on my hand and my dad hugging me for the last time. And my friend's hair, as she laughed, like these really like visceral moments of like, so beautiful and so wonderful to not be completely driven by the more traumatic elements, but holy crap, I'm only a human. And it's like, you know, so it's like the, like just the tears streaming immediately, like having access to all of this. And I said to my mom yesterday, like, I'm just, I struggle every year before my birthday. It's like this weird twist of, I get to keep going. And, and she, you know, she said, I'm so sorry, honey. Like, is there anything I can do? And I was like, I just want you to know that what makes it so unbearable is that it's 90% gratitude. Like I'm actually just cannot believe that within all of that, that, you know, I, I got, I got out of it and I get to be here and I get to laugh and I still hope and all, and I stayed connected. Everything in that, everything in grief teaches you to disconnect. Everything teaches you. And Mary Frances O'Connor, who wrote The Grieving Brain, will tell you grief doesn't start the day someone dies. It starts the day you meet them when you form the bond. So when you come to know that experientially and so honestly, the idea of creating another bond with anything, a job, a dream, a person, it's insane. It's insane. And so I'm like living this wild thing where I'm like, my heart is outside of my chest and I'm just really trusting myself and everybody. And I hope this goes okay. And does anybody have any bubble wrap? Because I'm not sure like how this is going to go, but it's the only way. And it's, so it's, it's, you're catching me at such an odd moment because I just really am in this really radically honest spot that I'm not sure I'm very comfortable with. And I think it's what I thought that I've wanted for 13 years. And now that it's here, I'm like, oh no, let's, let's go back. Look, let's close it up. Let's, you know, let's um, end this kind of like just being open to the world thing. So yeah. That's that's today in grief, quite literally today. I mean, that experience happened yesterday. So I I, I think it's it's very human. You know, I, people say like you shouldn't feel bad on your birthday or whatever. Like you shouldn't feel guilty. People always say that around grief and stuff. And I always just feel like, well, I think it's the perfectly human amount, you know, and and it's not that I feel guilty that I'm alive in these days leading up. It's it's a mixture of you know, really missing these people who have meant so much to me, grieving the loss of that. I'm not even the person that knew them anymore because I've come through this journey. And then also they were talking about at Modern Elder Academy when I went down in Baja in June that people might live till like 103. Well, I'm only 33. Like I'm like, that's a long time to miss three of the most incredibly beautiful, amazing people. I think it's important. A couple of things when you're talking, I so appreciate your insight around everything and just highlighting the, you know, when you describe turning the lights on and it's like, oh, you created these tools and you've been working through this grief and then you turn the lights on and now you're in a different phase of the grief, equally important, but different in like nuance and the way you describe those beautiful, simple moments and shifting into that. Cause I think a lot of people 
spend a lot of time in that traumatic phase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think just the dichotomy of grieving, maybe the way somebody died or some of the more seemingly dark elements of death, and then shifting over to those small moments that you're describing that I can tell you're a writer because the way you're describing the hair and, you know, these little things that are beautiful moments and pull these different emotions and how you're relating to those. A very important part of grief, but also a very different, really hard to articulate those kind of feelings because you're like, you're reflecting on such beautiful moments or qualities about those people that bring a warm feeling, but you, you know, have the longing and stuff. So that's really interesting to me. And also, I just wanted to point out when you're describing earlier the how you're coping and the maintenance of balance in your coping. And I think it's important to highlight that when we're distracting from ourselves and, you know, filling the void like we talked about, I mean, it's easy to categorize the unhealthy coping strategies as something that's pulling us out of ourselves. But I think when you talk about balance and fitness and traveling and all those things that can be categorized as healthy, And on the surface, they absolutely are healthy. Having balance is a beautiful thing and we like to do those, but those elements can also be mistaken for things that are helping us, but in a way they Mm -hmm. might not be. And so I think it's important for people to have discernment because a lot of times I say like, oh, if they're consuming alcohol, you know, that they're running from themselves. That's easy to kind of put into a little box there. And so I really appreciate and like your mindfulness around just being able to call things out for what they are. And even though, you know, those things look healthy on the surface that, that they might be used in an unhealthy way or a way that's not helping us acknowledge our full. Um, Love that. Yeah. And I think where we're at. that discernment word that you used is, is so important. And if there's one thing I could go back and tap on my own shoulder so many times is that is because I might hear a conversation like this and think like, oh, well, I'm not going to do that marathon anyway, because obviously I'm just doing it to distract myself and right. fix something or like run that charity or whatever. And it's not that at all, because I would go through phases like that of like, why am I writing this? Is this to like, you know, but if you can yeah. tap in during well, it's happening and go, hey, this is really helping part of me get through where I'm at. And it's just removing the belief that there's going to be a result when when it's completed that's bigger than it is. You will get to say you've run a marathon and that will be so real in every part of that. But that marathon is not going to bring anyone back. And it's not going to push you into a place where you no longer have to honor your grief on a daily basis. And I think if it's sort of like the detect early kind of thinking, but if if you can gently be saying that to yourself the whole time, yeah, you're doing it, you're running, you know, whatever the thing is. And I think even with things that, you know, may seem destructive with vices, you know, if you're if you're leaning into something that that somebody might classify as unhealthy, you know, we're using a tool at all times. And I try to have no judgment about anything like, you know, my friends, I'm like, whatever it is, just tell me, like, trust me, like, thought it done it, whatever, like, you know, I was really trying to figure this thing out. But even if it is something that you feel is unhealthy, having still having that relationship of going, okay, Yeah. Okay. And it's weird because what you're doing is you start to slowly untangle a little bit to the point where it doesn't work anymore. It kind of becomes the cheap stuff 
once you sort of become too smart to be dumb. And I hate it. I hate it because I want to do the cheap stuff again. Like I just want to like go for the dopamine. Not, and get out. It's not happening. Right. And it's like, yeah. it's, it's a, you get healthier, but it it's it, even if you can be gentle and curious and compassionate and discern in that way, no matter what it is that you're doing, but it's just kind of being like, Hey, I'm really proud of you. Also, just checking in that this award or the app reaching this many people or the book being a bestseller, it's not going to fix the grief. It's not going to fill Absolutely. like that's their special place. You know, like I said, that's their crater in the moon of your heart. Like that's that is that is not fillable. But like love that it's bringing purpose or the right amount of distraction at the right amount of time, you know, and, you know, many grief researchers like Mary Frances will say avoidance is one of the biggest tools of resilience, as long as we need it to be. I I, I had sat on my hands and counted for like three months because I was having post-traumatic reactions consistently. Like I was avoiding everything, but that was the, the most necessary tool in my toolkit at that time. If it gets to a point, obviously, where you're avoiding all the time, then maybe that's something that you speak to somebody about. But it, taking away that judgment, I just love that you're saying that because part of my whole thing of being an everyday person talking about real life grief is like, I haven't figured it all out. Like, I'm not like, I'm not, it's not like, oh, well, it must be nice for him. Like, I am hyperactively thinking I am, which is why I thought we were talking to talk about this whole time, dreaming incessantly, which I can't control that extra layer of thinking well, sort of sleeping. But, you know, and that's, that's just part of the game of it. It's just kind of like, there's no winning. And I, maybe because I danced for so long, you, no one ever is done dance. You you can't like do ballet. Like it's never over. Like nobody gets to be the best. There's no finish line. There's no, that's it. Like you've done it. Like you you literally do the best of what you can with it and enjoy every ounce of it until the day where you no longer do it. It's much like that with this, where it's like, get rid of perfect because it it doesn't exist here. And if you're not yeah. enjoying the excellence of this, then like, let's relook at what we're doing, you know, and what tools we're using. But I think that it's so easy for us to get sort of mean and hard on ourselves. You know, I do it, especially when I ruminate. And I always have like Corey Mascara's voice in my head being like, get curious, be like, what else you got? Okay, buddy, what's going, you know? And I'm like trying to do that. But like my go-to was I can bully this out of myself and I can punish myself for bad habits. And that, you know, that little co-parent in me was always like, I can, I can kind of sort of beat this out of you emotionally kind of thing. And I think just just still enjoy everything. It's not like, oh, I'm I'm just doing this to not feel my grief. Like not at all. I think there's such a fullness there. And in fact, the acknowledgement of it and the awareness, like you were saying, can actually give access to more of the fullness. Absolutely. Like it's going to yeah. pull out. Yeah. Yeah. And pull the delusion out of it. Like, I mean, me and Josh <laughs> talk about this a lot. It's like, don't expect us to do X, Y, Z, like go ahead and do it, have at her <laughs> and enjoy it and allow it to give you something, whatever it is. And you'll know if it's, if it's fed you in the right way or if it hasn't, but you know, you have to just be candid with yourself, like you're saying about those expectations and what the ROI is going to be. And sometimes the ROI isn't what you think, it, you know, what you came for, it ends up being something different. And and those are all things. But I think, yeah, having and having those supports, having those people in your life, 
people who are smart enough, like you said, that have the intellect or the emotional intelligence to say, and these are my favorite kind of people, but, you know, to say, like, what's your end game for this? Are you doing this just because you're doing this? Are you doing this repeatedly because you're running for something? Let's go down the rabbit hole with that and explore that and what your expectations are. And of course, you need somebody with the capacity to run that through with you. And those are great conversations, but I think help us really navigate like what's important to pour into. And mm-hmm. I think this is just a really important conversation about grief because so many people are learning themselves through the grief process. And there's so many parts of it that's like, yeah, how we relate to the people that we lost, but it's really a journey into the self. And so navigating all that and just figuring out who we are and and what feels good and what's going to be the best for us long term. And, you know, like you talked Mm -hmm. a lot about supporting other people around us, find that light in a really, really dark time. And your story about it's mind blowing, like the fact that you're here and it's you're at a young age. And like you said, you've, gosh, you've, you've lived a thousand lifetimes in that short period. And you're Mm -hmm. smiling and you're here and you look vital. (laughs) And uh, of course, the viewers can't see that piece. But you know, they can tell by your voice. And it's amazing. Like I'm just listening to you talk and like, you know, I don't know you on a personal level, but it's like, he's still here. Like he's still pushing through. Yeah, it's very beautiful. And I know that the listeners who have gone through some incredibly challenging and dark times and are in it right now mm-hmm. are yes. coming to that space. Like I, they can't see a way out. So I, I think you that. really hit on that there. And I, I love this as sort of like a, a thought to always remind people of, but I think it's easier. It's the most innocent thing in the world to focus on learning to live without someone or something meaningful And I think a lot more of the process is learning who you are within the loss of that meaning. And it's uncomfortable because like I said, you end up in a room with yourself and that's the one room we all never want to be in, right? But if you can gently remind yourself of that, it also is a very big switch from a results-oriented fixing mindset because the first one, you can it's something you're trying to complete. It's something you can you know, you think you can do, I'm going to learn to live without them. It's, it's a task. And the second one is a process. You're, you're an ever changing, you know, living, breathing thing. I used to say like the American constitution, but I'm really not sure anymore about that. But, you know, like this, this whole different way of just sort of just the way you're looking at it. And, and sometimes I get nervous that I don't have like these six steps that I drop whenever I like go on stage or, or whatever, but it's like, dude, you spent 13 years and you still have to remind yourself every single day to dispel the belief that this can be fixed. It's so simple, but it's not. And it's just like an everyday thing. Sometimes it's for me in the last week, it's been an every 10 seconds thing. Hey, 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 hey. And just, it's, it's literally like my, my final, I feel like stage in life of getting ready to, if I choose to end up being a father has been whether or not I can treat myself the way I would like to treat my own son. And that's only just showing up now, like this gentle, Hey, okay. Yeah. Okay. Like, let's deal with this. Let's sit down here. Let's like, you know, it's okay. Like that has not existed, you know, and that's still just like an everyday thing. So I, um, yeah, I just, um, I think that's such a wonderful, wonderful way to 
to think about it. And I'm sure a lot of people do obviously tune in given you know, that the Grief Dreams podcast, I know that I personally ruminate a lot around even that of things I can't control and getting mad at myself that I'm thinking or having these experiences like while I'm sleeping. And it's, it's just, there's, I think there's just information in all of it, but like, we don't need to use all of it. And we, again, don't need to like achieve like our knowing of our grief at every minute. Like, it's just like, this is gray space, dude. This is gray space right down in the book. I leave gray space throughout the whole thing because, and I made sure that it was gray when they designed it because this idea that it is like ever changing anything you write in gray space or any life you live in gray space, it's not set. It's not set. You become someone new every single day. And that's a very uncomfortable feeling when you're trying to stay exactly like you were in in this weird, innocent way of trying to stay close to someone you've lost because you want to stay as much of the person you were on the day they left so that they're still proud of that person and the person they loved exists if if both of you can't. And um, it's just... It's a lot more gray than that. And, and you're, you rob yourself of getting to know who you can actually do this thing called life with, like yourself, you know, like who can, who can really do this thing and who can you do it with? So yeah, live in the gray space, just live in it. I know it's easier said than done, but live in the gray space. That's a very interesting sort of like mindset, but it is very true. So you're not so rigid, you're more fluid. And you're more open to what comes and how you shift. I really love that. And I think this is a great time to talk about the dreams, as you sort of mentioned them a little bit, on you know how we even look at that. That a lot of times we can try to categorize them, but they are really in this gray space also. They're changing us. They change based on your perception and your beliefs. And so there's like multiple layers to how you can look at a dream. It really can force people into these, these places. And I'm really curious since you had said a lot of trauma and you had a lot of different types of losses, did you notice anything through your dreams? Did you ever have like the image of them appear or was it other things that come to mind? Yeah. Um, I sort of do this fully and briefly in a way, cause you know, that's my skill set, as you can see. Uh, not. Um, to go back to what you were saying earlier of peasant day grief, I will say that my biggest challenge is currently what I'm going through when I'm not awake. I've always been a very vivid dreamer and a hyperactive thinker. And for a normal night for me is sort of like watching seven Netflix shows in your head that you're narrating and then also sort of carrying your to-do list and like every sort of like dream, hope and want without like yourself there. Like it's, it's sort of like a black mirror thing for me, I'd say three nights of the week. So for anybody who has that, I really feel for that. And there is such a, an urge to I don't, medicate or, you know, you're just trying because you just want to sleep. I am not one of these people who sort of never really dream and then have like one formative dream. It's like sort of constant to a point that especially in the grief processes where I felt like I was more malleable, it would actually confuse me. They felt like memories. I mean, I, I dream very realistically. But within the three grief processes, I like journaled a bit about this today in preparation for this. And it's it's interesting because I noticed that my brother, I had very vivid dreams where we would have like the best time ever, always, like just like it was so loving. And then there was always a point in the dream where I realized and I was like, oh, you have to go. And I would wake up 
bawling like because it was like every night losing him again like it was but I wanted to spend the time with him so badly but there was always this point in the dream where I was like oh no you've got to go oh no you know so it was like every time I dreamt about him I was like basically my brain was breaking my own heart again kind of thing and so that was really interesting how that's what it was with with him and then I had this sort of odd formative experience one day where I just really felt a shift in energy and I'm not overly woo woo, but like something sort of, I just knew that it was different. And um, since then I don't dream as often, but when I do, it is, it is very similar. And I don't want this to sound wrong, but when my brother shows up in my dreams now, it's usually in correlation with like a romantic interest like it's like sort of like he's there's elements of him in who I'll get to love next like I'm very like aware that he's sort of there so that's kind of been that my dad my dreams of my dad are always were somewhere and it's like think of you were in like in a museum gallery and I'm like he's in the corner and the whole dream is me trying to get to the corner and I can't get there and Eventually, I started to get there at times, and he can't speak. He just like nothing. So it's just this. And then there's a little bit of sometimes like, oh, it was all staged. Like he's living in, you know, Morocco, and like I knew he was somewhere kind of thing. And there's more personal elements of sort of him. He's with people that I felt maybe he didn't protect me from at times and that that he's chosen sort of. And so like, I can never like really get to him. And that was really tormenting because I had had these beautiful things with my brother where at least it still felt like I got to spend time with him. But with my dad, it was like, he was, it was hurting. It was breaking my heart in a different way. Every time, like I'm fine. I'm trying to get to him all night. And every time I get to him, he either can't speak or he sort of ignores me. Like, you know, he's like not speaking to me. And I ended up actually doing fully legal assisted medically induced ketamine therapy around it. And I finally, on one of my last sessions had this whole sort of, I don't know what you call those. Cause it does to me felt very much like my dreams, the state that I would go into. And I've been wanting to, to kind of have some sort of contact with my dad. And my dad came to me in this and um, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't speak at first. And, when you're doing the ketamine sessions, you have like all your senses blocked, like, so you can't see, but you've got headphones on, you're listening to music, but the therapist, my, my psychiatrist was there, you know, so he's checking in, but he, like, you'd think, I always think he could see what I could see, like, but he, he couldn't, he's just sitting there. Right. So, and I can't remember a lot. So I will say things out loud that he'll then write down for me. And then we'd like go through or whatever. So my dad showed up in this and I, I kind of said, you know, he was kind of like off like just out of reach as usual. And I just, I was just saying to him, like, can you just come over here? Can you just come over here? And it was this really weird thing where my dad basically told me that, and it flashed the scene from Mrs. Doubtfire when they're telling him he can't see his kids without visitation. And my dad and I always watched Mrs. Doubtfire together, my dad and my brother and my sister and I. And um, that scene where he says, my kids are like air, you can't take my kids away from me. Like I didn't, I don't need somebody to watch me with my kids. And so I was seeing that scene. And basically my dad was saying to me, 
that every time I try to get close to you, it's like you need medical supervision. This idea of me is not me. It's the suicide. It's the trauma. It's the every time I show up, it's it's like people need to be what like with me with my kid. A therapist has consulted, a coach is told, you tell your mother, like, you know, because it's I've been frightening you for 10 years, kind of in these ways that have come up. So he's saying all that. And then I was seeing the Mrs. Doubtfire stuff, and and the psychiatrist said, What's going on? what's going on? And I just looked my dad in the eyes and I, and I said, nothing, just really pretty colors, just really pretty colors. And he just like my dad nodded at me. And it was just like, I'm not, I don't need help. You can be here. Like I, you're not a danger to me. Like, I love you. Like, so it's this very formative, like experience that I like, and I have to say that in the days and weeks and months since then, like the soul weight that finally dispersed, like of just like, but I didn't get it. I didn't get why there was this like sort of disconnect there, you know? And I'd, I'd have to, in my waking hours, be like, he loved you more than anything. Like no one was more proud. He'd bring people in off the street to show them like my modeling pictures. Like he'd find strangers and bring them into the house. Like, you know what I mean? Like he'd call me every day. He learned how to text six months before he passed. So it was like T9 wording every five seconds. Like you are a star. I love you, my son. I'm proud of you. <laughs> just like never. Like, okay, I'm still at work. Like, you know, like it would just be like this. And that. So it's like, like logically, I'm like, there's no question, but it was these dreams made me really feel like I had done something wrong or I hadn't gone there sooner or, you know, like whatever it was I had led to whatever. And and so that, that experience, which I do, the only thing I have words for is like, it, it was a dream because I, of the way that I was sort of induced. And for me, I dream that way anyways, where I can usually think during it anyway. So talking to the doctor at the same time, didn't really not feel like a dream for me. Yeah. And then my friend, very weird, one dream ever. I was driven in like a beautiful, she was like, she had this Instagram account she was building called the bougie peasant. She was kind of, she was fun and loved fashion and, you know, but like accepting the, the peasantness, but, but bougie and she wasn't a peasant. Enough. She was, you know, glamorous, but um, I was driven in this like very nice car. And I remember just like being like, who dressed me? Like I was clearly like a stylist had like like this like perfectly like like white cashmere coat that I could never wear because there would be coffee on it and like all this you know thing driven in this and I we just drove up to this house and it was this beautiful white house with this beautiful white garden and the person I didn't see their face but they opened the door for me and I got up and and she was in the garden and she turned to me and I just walked up to her and I looked her in the eyes and she like embraced me and it's like that weird thing where it feels like it was forever, but it was probably like 10 seconds. And then I like woke up, but like that dream sort of exists within me forever. Like it's on a loop. Like it's this weird sort of spaciousness within me and my grief of like, I just, she was good, you know? And, and then again, like, yeah, never, never again. So it's, it's really weird. My brother has been recurring, which makes sense kind of, I guess, you know, brothers. And then my dad was very specific. And obviously I think the trauma bled into the, the dreams in that and then and then having that experience and I, I rarely dream of him now and then for someone who dreams like I said seven dreams at a time all night long to have only seen my friend once in it will be six years in March it, it's, it's pretty wild that she like and it just it just gives me a sense of 
that energy is very free. And she was like a dancer and it's a beautiful dancer. She, nobody quite moved the way she moved. Like it, she just, she literally, the way she moved on earth was unlike anything else. And I just know that's sort of still happening and flowing and whatever works. We won't get into any sort of beliefs around what happens after we die, because that would be another four hours. And I don't think I would have an answer. <laughs> uh, but keep honoring whatever works for you while it works for you. But yeah, those are just, that's, that's sort of what really came up. And so in order to be nomadic the last two years and kind of go and find on myself, my most current recurring dream, I would have this dream where my dog is like one of the loves of my life. And I got him right after that suicidal moment. So he really understood that he's an emotional support dog. And his name's Hank Moody Jr. And I named him after a quote from the show Californication because he says, whatever happens, happened. What happens next is up to you. And so that, I took that quote and then sort of named him and Hank, my dad's name was Henry. So it kind of like worked, but he's like, he's not a dog. He's like a literal, like love thing that just like exists to love anybody and everybody. And so he's the best dog ever to babysit because he just has no problem acting like you have given him everything and you're his owner. But at certain points in this traveling, I've had to leave him behind. And my mom lives up by a lake and there's a wolf that sits like outside her house she comes home and it's there and it really frightens me. And I'm always like, mom, like, I just, I don't know how to explain this to you, but I cannot lose my dog. So like, just like be so careful, you know, but it, it's weird. I would have this recurring dream where I'm sitting on this back porch and it's like just beautiful. And I'm just like very aware in the dream that this is like my place, like my piece and Hank's in the yard. And then a coyote comes and it's like this thing where there's no way I can move fast enough to stop it. And there's no way I can slow things down to enjoy what time I have left. And it's just like this freeze. And it was just like this thing that would come up. And it started to happen. Like when I first started getting like my silver hairs, I started to notice like, just like my own aging process, I started to have these dreams. And it was sort of this mixture of, I think, worrying, but then like, this feeling of like when I was in those suicidal moments, like there's a coyote in the yard and there's no way you can be fast enough. You cannot beat this. You cannot fix this, that like this nature, you know, it's just this thing that really tormented me. And I actually brought it up when I was at a retreat down at modern elder Academy, Aaron Taylor, the football player was helping run the whole week. And I had brought up in a circle share this dream and we were talking about aging and I, I was the, the youngest there by far, but he, he brought it up and I got very emotional about this dream and how much it scares me. Like, I don't, I don't really want to be in that yard. And I think it's really, it's about how I've been through so much and sort of invested my childhood in, in this grief survival, you know, and then now, like, now I feel like I'm saying normal, like a baby again, but like also like silver hair is showing up. So it's this very weird, like what is happening kind of thing. So we did the whole week and at, at my graduation at the week, he pulled out this, this thing about symbolism and the whole week I'd been talking about all, all I want to bring back into my life after writing the book and feeling like I've done sort of enough for you know, on a daily basis in my advocacy of helping others um, was that I just wanted to bring humor back into my life. That was always our thing. That was our our gift. And apparently the, the spiritual significance of the coyote is a reminder to bring humor, like laughing coyote back into your life. And so he just like really reframed the whole thing in this very beautiful sort of moment in this like ceremony of 
the thing you've been fearing most is actually an invitation and it's the exact one that you've been asking for. So it's a, there's a coyote in the yard. It was a working memoir to, um, title for a minute for me, but it, you know, starting with that scene and then ending with that, that totally different flip on it. And I think it's very true for grief. And I think, you know, we can look at dreams and we can look at every little thing. And like I said, like obsess about it because we want to create meaning because meaning feels like new closeness to somebody we've lost maybe, but there's that carefulness, that curiosity, that gentleness that has to exist because totally missing the point. These, these things can coexist, love and humor in the yard. And the dream never goes to an attack. There's no lunge. There's no growling. There's no, you know, but that's where I went from my fear and what I've been through in my grief Olympics. And, oh, here we go. And um, it's time for Coyote and and Hank Moody Jr. to live in the yard. And I, I really try to remind myself that. And I still have the dream now. And it's just this weird, peaceful, like, you know, it kind of sounds like a Brad Pitt movie just on like the back porch. And it's like calm and the, like, you got like the two things. He's just chilling, just Brad smoking a cigarette, not worried. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, that's, yeah, that's where my dream, my dream stuff. How beautiful. And pulled in on the idea that, and it's so funny that you're bringing this up because it's something I'm working through now and timing is everything, but just that element of like bringing in joy and laughter. And sometimes those things, after we've been through lots of traumatic stuff and grief, joy and laughter can be just terrifying because Mm -hmm. we've been in that space for so long. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's, uh, you know, a recent conversation between me and Josh as well. Like, how do you embrace the fullness? like the whole human experience. Mm-hmm. And yes, you've been in survival mode, you or, or me or him or whoever, right? Is But like, how can we make space to be happy, you know, ha- have happiness and joy and bring lightness to a moment? Yeah, I And love that, that could be terrifying. That's hard. That's hard when you've been living For in a space. For me, it though. was harder that other people were uncomfortable by it because I think humor is my number one tool in my resilience toolkit and in my family, it's our language. We're fluent and knowing something so, so truly that like you can, it can be so funny no matter what it is. And I'm like telling you about like my sister and my, like our brains, but like, I just laugh hysterically. And we're talking about the worst days of our lives, but we, we just, when you know something so well, I mean, the best comedians, the best comedic writers, they're so smart. Because when you know something so intimately, it is funny in a totally different way. You're not going for the the punchline. You know, it's yes. it's like, no, this is like life funny. This is the the true find the funny kind of thing. And it's yeah. it's in there. And that's I mean, I I've embarked on I actually launches on Monday, my podcast, Grief Club the Podcast, which Josh is on and Yay, we talk about congrats. grief dreams. But when I sat down with myself at the beginning of the year and I was like, hey. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities coming up around this book and being sort of this younger grief guy and doing speaking and stuff. And I was like, but I'm not having fun. And it was the whole coyote thing. And it's, it's not funny and I'm funny. And I didn't do all this for 10 years to, to not have fun. Like, it just sounds so silly, like a career meeting where I'm going, Oh, it's not fun. I'm not doing it. And people are like, I don't think that's how adulting works. And I'm like, well, 
It is for me. Like, so <laughs> I in love the, it. Literally in the structure of the episode, no matter what we talk about, I say it's equal parts honor the journey and find the funny. And I always end the episode with the find the funny and them just t- talking about what part humor plays in their lives and really to just normalize that conversation. It's really interesting how I, I had a doctor on actually another Canadian and, and he's a you know, he studies death. And what he was saying is like, people say, seem to think that that's so sort of dark, right? But he's like, but really what it is, is that we, we study all of life, and we've just left the death in. And when he said that to me, I just loved that so much, because it's, you hear it, and you think like, oh, this, like the study of death, but the study of death is all of life and death is like, sort of the process within it. And that's how I feel about all of our emotions and humor. And like, I just chose to leave the humor in and it it really, really works for me. So this invisible rule that, you know, there's guilt around laughter or how much we cry or don't cry or whatever. I just, I just leave it all in. And and as it comes up, it comes up, trust me, if you laugh, it is not going to get you out of like crying or fix anything. Like, you know, you're still going to be crying, you know? So it's, that comfortability with sitting with yourself and going, no, dude, this is truly funny. And that doesn't take away from anything else in your grief process. It doesn't dilute anything. In fact, it makes you so in tune with what's what, you know, this is And I think, you know, when I tell people, oh yeah, I host a grief podcast and they're like, oh, that's so dark and depressing. (laughs) I I love talking about death and dying. And I'm like, actually, it's not. The people are beautiful and strong and charismatic and funny. It really is the pinnacle of all things human. And it's beautiful and it's so inspiring. I never feel, I never feel bad about it. I always feel, I cry a lot. You know, Mm -hmm. that's a given, but like it makes me live more brightly, Mm -hmm. I think. And it helps me. It feeds me. I mean, we we wouldn't be like still doing it if, if that wasn't true. But I think just a misconception around death and dying. Is it difficult? Absolutely. But that journey, experiencing that, watching that, going through that, it pulls just these really brilliant parts of us out to the surface. I think it's beautiful. So, yeah. Me too. And thank you too for being friends who get it. When I subtitled the book that, it was like not me saying, I get what you're going through, but it's just that I get that this will always be there. And I really find the friends who get it conversations like this where you're talking about something so you know serious and you and I do leave today like feeling lighter you know and that's how I know I spent a little bit of time with friends who like you know who get it get it you know and I I think there's a lot of beauty to that and I think that grief has always been like this isolating and inherently lonely process and there's parts of it that are always going to be because each grief process is specific to a bond and a relationship you know we know that But then there's this other part of where, like I said, you leave life in. So it's like the inverse of what he said. But if we leave life in, we can talk about anything for an hour and a half because we're honoring the grief. It's there. It's not being hidden or pushed away or, you know, it's, it's there. And you know when you're in the presence of other people who just get that. People always say, oh, I know somebody else who, you know, dad's passed away in a similar way and like lost a sibling. And okay, that's very rare, but they have both. But, you know, where they say, you know, I I think you guys should talk. And it's so funny because I'm always like, these people always think we get together and we just talk about like trauma for like an art app. But it's like the the quickest way to like laughter. And like we talk about everything else because it's like 
I know you get it. I don't have to like, there's no part of me that needs to show up to show that I really loved my people or it really affected me or, you know, like we don't have to do any of that. I'm with a friend who gets it. Like, so we can just like be so silly and we're safe. It's like, I I love that. So I, you know, if you feel like you don't have those people in your life, that's why I love the podcasting and the idea of, you know, for, for what I wanted to do was just hang out. So people, if they're not finding that can feel that. And, you know, some people be like, I can't believe that he talks to laugh so much on that show, but it's like, yeah, you're going to be in for a surprise. Like I'm literally a child in church looking for every opportunity to find something to be truthful enough to get to laugh around it. Like, cause that is my favorite thing about being alive. Gosh, I love that. I love that. And, and thank you guys so much for this conversation. Honestly, it's, it's, uh, it's left me feeling lighter, which I did not honestly think an hour ago that it would. Uh, as I said in the beginning, I was in a very raw, vulnerable sort of place, and I'm leaving feeling like so much lighter and, and so much more connected. I'm happy to hear that we didn't <laughs> make you feel worse. <laughs> yeah, that was that like, was well, thanks, guys. I'm going to cancel my birthday party because this was hard. <laughs> oh, I think there is truth to just talking about it and talking about it in a space where you don't have to sort of explain, but just be. And I think I remember being on your podcast and you asked similar questions. I had a similar moment at the end where it's just like, you feel lighter, you feel freer. It's just, it's the person who you're speaking with and the, and the, the moments they allow you to sit in. And I think that's such an important aspect. It's not just sharing, it's but who you're, what the environment is in, in your sharing and what, you're allowed to almost be. And if you can laugh while you're free, like (laughs) that's that's it. And if you can cry at the same time while you're doing really great because you're, you're balancing everything. And so one of our last questions that we always love to ask is if you could have a dream tonight of someone who has died, what would that look like to you? Since I know you're going to be going to bed pretty soon. Come on guys. Um, It was so good. We were laughing. Like you got to throw this. Now, um, if I could have a dream. Oh, tonight. Um, It has to be somebody who died. Because if I'm being really honest, my gut response to that is that I wouldn't dream tonight. That I would rest knowing that I, I, I don't need to subconsciously check in or sort of maintain my grief relationships all night long, you know, as, as I have in the past, I think. But um, I don't know, like, what would be kind of fun? I mean, Elvis could show up, we could do like, a, you know, I, I actually, I've always wanted to see if I could go back in time, Elvis, Whitney Houston, or um, Queen at Live Aid. So I can have a dream that I got to be there. They're dead. I took your question and I flipped it. Sorry. I'm out of sentimental juice for my own loved ones today. No, (laughs) but... I want to see Freddie Mercury. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. No, it's good. We've never had a response like that, actually. Usually it's... Like something um, cool. (laughs) The awareness around I'm out of sentimental juice. I want to see... Whitney Houston or Queen. And hey, that's the the lightness of it. Mm. And that would be what you need right now. So we accept it with open arms. <laughs> Thank you. I will say we did have someone on the podcast who frequently dreams of Prince because it's such a big part of someone's life. So celebrities are still and people that move us in different ways. Yes. You know, that's part of all of our grief. It may not be as something we focus on, like the mm-hmm. ones we have previously. 
but they are a part of her life and their death meant something and, and who they are and what they, what they do on stage and, and help us feel alive. I love it. That's great. I really do hope you get to dream of all of them. And who knows, maybe they bring you on stage and you can do something with them. Right. There you go. <laughs> and like, and I no longer want to have that dream now. <laughs> do not pull me on stage. <laughs> oh, thank you guys. Yeah. I am. Um, I've really enjoyed this. Yeah. Thank you so much. Just want to say, I appreciate your time and effort today. And I'm just really, I love this episode. I love the conversation. I know the listeners are going to love it. And uh, just so happy you like showed up in full force today and just grace us with all your wisdom and insights and vulnerability and humor and your, yeah, just beautiful storytelling and just so cool. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it so much. And thanks for hanging out in a way that makes us all feel like we're in this together. I think that's that's the coolest thing, you know, for people cool. to listen to you yeah, guys. Yeah, we love it. So uh, listeners, where can they find you? I am Addison Brazil. Uh, Brazil, like the country, but spelt with an S, as my dad always said, um, on socials personally. And then I have at share my grief club, S H A R E, my grief club, as much as my mom would like that to be share as in the share. Uh, <laughs> it's share my grief club, uh, mygriefclub.com. And launching on Monday, I'm sure by the time this airs, it will exist, but grief club, the podcast will be available on all the streamers and I'll just be hanging with friends who get it and using uh, each of the experience of my book as sort of a loose launching point to explore. And I'm just, I, I really feel at home in being sort of this everyday guy who curates what I don't consciously create and, and just like kind of, you know, for grief club going in and kind of pulling in my people who said they'd be there for me if I got through. Well, now I'm strong arming them in and putting them on record and saying, <laughs> we got to help the others. I made a promise. So I'd love to see everybody there. Yeah. Great. Love that. And happy birthday. Wishing you all Thank the, you. All, all you know, everything your heart desires, a lovely year and grace and just a blessing. And like you said, 90% gratitude that you get another year of existence and experiences and fullness of life. So happy birthday to you. Thank you. 